Amen. At this time, children, you are dismissed for Children's Church. Everyone else, let's go ahead and take our Bibles. We're opening to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 11 as we continue to talk this morning about worldliness versus godliness. So last week as I was preparing, I was trying to decide, do we want to preach one really long sermon or do we want to preach two relatively normal sermons? And so I decided for your sake, for your benefit, because I love you, that I would preach two relatively normal sized sermons as opposed to one long sermon. So last week we preached kind of the first part of this sermon. This week we're going to pick up and preach the second half of the sermon, the second part of the sermon. And here James again is warning his readers concerning the dangers of worldliness. Now just remember, if you will, coming out of chapter 3, oh he's excited, coming out and he'll never let go of your hair by the way, so just good luck with that. So remember, coming out of chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago, James was talking about the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. Wisdom from below versus wisdom from above. And remember, we are driven by either one of those wisdoms. We are either driven by the wisdom of the world trying to do everything we can to get the things of this world or we are driven by the wisdom of God living our lives for the glory of God. But, but all of us have one of those wisdoms kind of driving the boat, if you will, steering the boat, if you will. That's what we're doing in our lives. Now, we've also acknowledged that if you're a human being who's given your heart and life to Christ and you're still living on this earth, you're still in a fleshly body, then you're struggling with worldliness. That there's no real way around it. If you are a believer, if you're following Christ, you're still struggling with worldliness because you still live in this world, you still have eyeballs, you're still drawn to things that are opposite or opposed to God, you're struggling with sin in your life, and that struggle, by the way, is a good thing, because that struggle means that you are doing that which God has called you to do, you're trying to walk with and live for Christ in the midst of a sinful world, and you and I are not ever going to knock it completely out of the park, right? We're going to struggle. But the fact that we're struggling means that we're trying. We're, we're doing our best to live for Christ. It's when we're not struggling because we don't care or because we've completely given over to the things of the world, that's when there's major issues. And so if we, as we walk through the beginning of chapter 4, we realize some things that are important for us. And this morning, we're going to see two more truths concerning the dangers of worldliness. Now, let me just remind you of kind of where we've been. Then we're going to read the text moving forward. Then we're going to walk through this together this morning. And so remember that in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we saw this truth. Friendship with the world makes us the enemies of God. Let me say that again. Friendship with the world makes us the enemies of God. Remember, we cannot be passionate about the things of this world and the things of God. We are going to be passionate about one or the other. And so if we're driven by selfish ambitions, trying to get everything this world has to offer, then we are the enemies of God, whether we know it or admit it or not. 
We cannot be friends with the world and friends with God. If we're friends with the world, James says we are enemies of God. Secondly, we saw that friendship with God results from humility and leads to grace. Look back with me at verse 6 because it's one of the most helpful verses and encouraging verses in the book of James. Verse 6 begins, but he gives more grace. And so remember, as we struggle with sin as believers, and we come to the point where we think, what a wretched person I am, James reminds us he gives more grace. He gives more grace than you need. He gives more grace than you can handle. God is there to give grace. But who does he give it to? God gives grace to the humble. Those who come before him acknowledging their great need for him. God gives grace to those who realize that they are sinners, they're in desperate need of God, and that without God, they're in bad, bad shape. And so God gives grace to the humble. And so friendship with God results from humility. It leads to grace. And then remember those six things. We're not going to talk about them. I just want to remind you of those six commands that flow out of that truth. James says in verses 6 through 10, Submit to God as the authority of your life, Resist the devil and temptation and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, confess your sins, hate and mourn your sin, and then finally humble yourself before the Lord. So that's where we were at last week. And this morning we're going to pick up in verses 11 and following. And we're going to see the final two truths concerning the dangers of worldliness. So James chapter 4, let's pick up in verse 11. And we'll work our way through the end of the chapter. James says this in verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him It is sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for giving us this chance to walk through this text this morning. Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Lord, that you would be glorified in how we listen, how we hear, how we receive, and how we respond to your word. Lord, that we wouldn't just understand the text, but we would understand how we can apply it into our daily lives. So, Lord, speak to us this morning as we surrender ourselves to you. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thirdly, we're going to see in the text, friendship with God results in speech that is honoring to God. So in verse 11 of chapter 4, James tells his readers not to speak evil against a brother. Now, again... Remember that James is writing to the church, a church just like us, that is struggling with worldliness and godliness. And James says, do not speak evil against a fellow brother or sister in Christ. To speak evil is to gossip, slander, judge, criticize, etc. Right? And if we're being brutally honest with one another, we would all have to admit that we struggle in this area. 
Can you believe what she was wearing? I, I can't stand it when he does that. I wish he didn't do stuff like that. You see, our problem is we talk about each other instead of talk to each other when we have issues with one another. That's the problem. Right? The problem oftentimes isn't the issue. Right? The problem is how we go about dealing with the issue. We talk to others, slander, gossip, criticize, judge, instead of going to our brother or sister in Christ and saying, hey, can we talk about this? And what we need to understand is that when we do that, that is a community and fellowship or relationship killer. In other words, if you spend enough time in a church, or any group of people for that matter, and you begin to see that everybody's talking about and criticizing everybody else, then what you're going to learn to do is keep your mouth quiet because you don't dare want to get intimate with anyone. Because you know they're going to talk about you just like they talked about so-and-so. And what happens is that instead of having a relationship or a church family that's intimate, that's helping each other through the struggles of life, that's dealing with sin together as the body of Christ as God commands, instead, we don't trust each other anymore. Imagine if your right foot, I got it right, right foot. Imagine if your right foot and your left foot didn't trust one another. Didn't want to be anywhere near each other. And weren't willing to cooperate with one another. That'd be kind of disastrous for your walking, would it not? Well, that's the same thing that happens within the body of Christ when two members learn they can't trust, don't really like, and don't want to be around one another. It's disastrous for the body of Christ. And that, by the way, is where division starts, festers, and leads to massive, massive problems. For churches. Amen? And what we've got to understand is James says it all begins when we speak evil against one another. And the problem, James says, is that when we speak evil against one another, not only does it destroy community within the church, but it also usurps the authority of God. In other words, the person who speaks evil is judging and is therefore taking the place of God. Notice what James says in verse 11. James says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. James says the person, the person speaking evil, he's judging his brother, he's placing himself above the law, and he's judging the law. James says the problem with that is there's only one judge and you and I are not it. Amen? Amen? The judge is the one who gave the law, the one who perfectly obeyed the law. He's the giver and he is the judge of the law, not us. And so James says, when we judge others, we are taking the place of God. And then notice what James says in verse 12. He says, there's only one lawgiver and one judge. That's God, by the way, who is able to save and to destroy. In other words... God alone has the power to save us from our sins. And God alone has the power to judge us for our sins. And so instead of worrying about what other people are doing that we don't like and speaking evil against them, we may want to worry about our own sin 
because we're the ones who will stand before God in judgment. We may may want to make sure that we have placed our faith in Christ, that we have been saved from our sin, instead of worrying about all the stuff that someone else might be doing that we don't really like. James says when we become intimately close with God, when we become friends with God, in kind of James's vernacular, if we are friends with God, then it will change the way we speak and it'll change the way we speak about one another. It'll help us to realize because he's the judge that I actually have bigger sin in my life than somebody else has in their life. And instead of me worrying about what someone else is doing that I don't like, I'll start focusing on the sin that I still need to deal with in my life, right? And it won't cause me, remember, to try to do better. It'll cause me to submit more and more and more of myself to the Lord so that he can work in me, that he can work through me, so that he can do his work in me because he's the one that does the work. I just have to surrender to him so he can do the work, right? And so James says, if you're friends with God, then it'll change the way you speak. You see, friendship with the world, remember, makes us the enemies of God. Friendship with God results from humility and leads to grace. Friendship with God results in speech that is honoring to God. And then fourthly, James says friendship with God results in trusting in God's sovereignty. Now, verse 13, James begins to address something that was common in his day and is still common in our days. Notice what he says. James imagines a businessman, a hypothetical businessman, who says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make some money. And I got a plan. I'm going to go to such and such a town. I'm going to live there for a couple of years. I'm going to buy and I'm going to trade and I'm going to make money. Now, I want to point something out to you. Notice this man has a plan, not a scheme. And notice this guy is trying to make money, not gain dishonest gain. You see, this guy's problem is not that he's doing something wicked and evil. He's got some kind of a scheme, right? It's not that he's trying to be dishonest, that he's going to do something that is illegal or illicit, that he's trying to make money off of. No, the problem is this guy has a plan, but this guy has a plan that doesn't involve God. That's the problem. And so the question becomes then, how do we make plans and involve God in our plans? And so how should we make plans? Well, first of all, we should make plans. Let me say that clearly. We should make plans. James is not telling us, Scripture does not tell us to just sit back and let God do everything while we just warm the pew or warm our couch and do nothing. That's not what God's telling us, right? God has given us commands. He's given us his will to follow. And part of following God's plan for our life is to make plans along the way, right? So we're to make plans, right? We're to be doers of the word, chapter 1, verse 22, Right? We're to be actively serving the Lord. We're not to sit back and just see what happens. We're to be doing things for the glory of God. And part of that is making plans in order to do so. So we're to make plans. But secondly, we're to make plans while seeking and submitting to the sovereignty of God. You see, the reality is our plans are only worth something if God allows them. Notice that in the text. I love how James says this, especially in verse 15. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will what? Live. Well, that's a big part of the plan, is it not? Right? Like, that's really key to me fulfilling this plan of making money in the next year by buying and trading. I've got to be alive to do so. 
right? And I love how James throws that out. He's not even starting with the plan. He's like, let's just start with your life. Your life is up to the Lord, not you. Your life is but a moment. It's a mist that vanishes. So what does tomorrow hold? We don't know. But God does. What does the future hold? We don't know. But the Lord does. I don't even really know if I'll be here tomorrow. I plan to be. I hope to be. But I'm not in charge of that. Amen? And so as we make plans, we make plans understanding and submitting to the sovereignty of God. We make plans that acknowledge that ultimately God is the one that is in complete and total control. And therefore, we not only acknowledge his sovereignty, but we submit to his sovereignty saying, Lord, we want our plans to be your plans. God, we want to we do what you want us to do. I, God, God, you're in control, not me. So God, I, I just want to do what you want me to do. I, I want to submit to your authority. I want to submit to your will in my life. And listen, when God's will is not clear, which oftentimes it's not, then we wait, we pray, we submit, and we do that which God has already commanded us to do. And we do it where we're at. Listen, Carrie and I are just coming off of a fairly long season of not really knowing what God's will was. Four years, we've been praying through this process of, of moving overseas. And for three of those years, we both were looking at each other going, I don't know. I don't know. But what we did know was that God had placed us here to preach and teach the word here. And so what did we do? And this wasn't based upon my wisdom. This was based upon the advice of another pastor. We waited we prayed, we submitted, and we did what God had already told us to do. Listen, I'm a, I'm a hunter. I, I, I toyed with whether I should use this illustration or not. If you don't like it, then I'm, forgive me. I'm sorry, but I'm going to do it anyway. I, I'm a hunter. And so a pastor friend was telling his son, who's also a hunter, a good friend of mine. It's actually Corey Ickes. His dad was telling him as Corey and Ashley were struggling through, God, what do you want us to do? And because he's a hunter, Corey's dad says, son, you need to go back to last blood. And Corey's like, oh, man, that's such good advice. Now, for those who don't hunt, what happens is when you shoot an animal, a lot of times that animal will run off and it'll die shortly thereafter, and you got to go find the animal. And so it's called tracking or trailing the animal. And when you trail an animal like that, it will be bleeding along the way. And what you don't want to do is get out ahead of it because if you're not careful, you will actually step on and cover up and mess up the trail that the deer's leaving. And so when you get out and you cannot find it and you haven't seen blood any longer, the best thing to do isn't to keep going randomly in different directions. The best thing to do is to stop and go back to the last place you saw blood. Stay there and figure out where you need to go from that point. And so when he said that to Corey and then Corey said it to me, it was like a light bulb went off. I was like, okay, Lord, I know what that means. I just got to go back to the last place I know you had me. And the last place I know you told me was right here. And so you just want me to wait and to pray and trust and just do that which you've already called me to do. Just keep doing what you've called me to do. 
right? And then eventually the Lord will reveal his will to us and then we can do that next thing. But I want you to understand, God's word is filled with commands that we ought to be obeying regardless of where we're at. So what does God want you to do? Well, I can tell you without a doubt, God wants you to make disciples where you are at. God wants you to be sharing the gospel where you are at, right? You don't even have to pray about that. Just do that. Be doers of the word. Amen? And so what do you do when you can't figure out God's will? You wait, you pray, you submit, and you do what God's already commanded you to do. So make plans. Make plans that are submitted to and acknowledging the sovereignty of God. And then thirdly, once you know God's will, obey God's will. Notice what it says in verse 17. James says, so whatever... So whoever, excuse me, knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, excuse me, it is sin. We call this the sin of omission, right? It's not doing what God has commanded you to do. Now, we all know what disobedience is when we do what God hasn't commanded. So God says, don't lie. We lie. We, we know that's a sin, right? But when God says, for instance, like in the book of James, that true religion for the, before the Lord is to take care of widows and orphans, the needy, in their times of need, and we don't do it, guess what that is? Sin. It's a sin of omission. It's me not doing what God's commanded me to do. So if God's word commands that we should make disciples of all nations, that we should fulfill the Great Commission, and we're not taking part in that individually or corporately, then we are committing a sin of omission. We're not doing what God's clearly commanded us to do. Right? If we're not spending time in the word, if we're not intimately in relationship with the Lord, again, we're not doing necessarily anything wrong. We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. It's a sin of omission. And James says here in the context, if you know God's will for your life but won't do it, that's sin. It's a sin of omission. And so what we have to be willing to do is we have to be willing to do anything and everything God commands us and leads us to do. You say, well, that sounds fantastic. I just wish I knew what God's will was for my life. Well, how do we know what God's will is? Well, just for the sake of time, I want you to jump over with me to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I love how commentators, especially liberal commentators, try to put James and Paul as opposites, as rivals. Their theology doesn't line up. But it's amazing to me how many times Paul and James help one another and provide commentary for one another. So how do we know what God would have us to do? Well, Paul answers that question for us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your act of service. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God of God what is good and acceptable and perfect so just stay there for a minute and notice what we're asking what we're trying to figure out comes at the end of verse 2 what is the will of God what is that that is good acceptable and perfect what does God want me to do that's what we want to know amen so how do we get to the end of verse 2 
Well, it starts at the beginning of verse 1. James says, I urge you, I appeal to you. You could even translate that as I beg you. James is, I mean, Paul is pleading with us based upon, notice, the mercies of God. Now, we're not going to go through the entire book of Romans, but if you go back and read verses or chapters 1 through 11, those are the mercies of God. The mercies of God are everything God did to bring about your salvation. Everything God did to bring about your salvation. And when you go back and you read those mercies of God, you find out that although God created us and we sinned against him, both Jews and Gentiles alike, we're all wicked, we're all evil, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We find out that while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his own love for us in that Christ died for us. He died to pay for our sins because we were sinners and we had no hope of eternal life apart from Christ. Not only did Jesus die for our sins, but then we find out that God called us unto himself, opened our eyes to the truth of who he is, called us unto ourselves or unto himself so that we could respond by putting our faith in him so that God was sovereign in our salvation. So Christ died for us. God called us unto himself, enabling us to put our faith in him so that we could be saved, so that we could trust in him. And that as God did this, God removed all the barriers that separated us from him. And he also removed all the barriers that separated Jews and Gentiles so that we could all become the body of Christ together. All of those are the mercies of God. And what Paul says is this. He says, based upon the mercies of God, everything that God has done that you don't deserve, including the breath you're breathing now, based upon the mercies of God, Paul says that you're to present your body as a living sacrifice. In other words, Paul says that you're to stop living for the world, start living for God. Paul says, do everything that James has been urging you to do from midway through chapter 3. Stop being driven by the wisdom from below. And start living your life for the glory of God. And I love how Paul says it because Paul makes it really clear. The only way for me to start living for God is for me to stop making the decisions. I've got to die to myself. Because I will always get in the way. I will always, always, always get in the way. Right? Yesterday, Haley was, we had a birthday party and she was, had all her grandparents and some friends over and she was trying to get through the kitchen. And I love because I am aggravating. That is one of my characteristics. I'm aggravating. I'm also sarcastic. Forgive me. That's who I am. Right? And so as she's trying to get through, the, through the, the kitchen there, I love to get in her way. And so I'm doing this, and then doing this, and doing this, and then she tries to shoot between my leg, and I pinch her between my legs. Right? She knows it's coming. I know it's coming. We both have a blast with it, but normally we are both in Carrie's way when that's going on. Right? That's the picture that I have when I get involved and I'm not dead to self. That's what I'm doing to the Lord. God's trying to move, he's trying to do, he's trying to work, and I'm getting in the way because I'm trying to do it better than God can do it himself. Well, that's silly and foolish, amen? So I have to die to self. I have to stop doing what I think's right, what I want to do. I have to die to self, which is not easy. 
so that I can live for Christ. Living sacrifice. Dead to self, but alive to God. Right? And at that point, I'm not making decisions any longer if I'm dead to self and I'm doing whatever God's called me to do. I'm I'm a living sacrifice. Right? So I've professed my faith in Christ. I've trusted Jesus. I've died to self. I'm living for Christ. So I've surrendered to God in salvation. I'm following Jesus with my life. And then notice verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to what? This world. It's almost as like Paul is helping James out here, right? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says, stop thinking like the world thinks. And start thinking like God thinks. Well, the only way to do that, as you've heard me say many, many times before, is to read the word of God. If we don't put God's word in our mind, then we will keep thinking like this world. We will keep thinking like this world. We'll spend all of our lives doing things that are temporary, that are meaningless, that do not last for the sake of eternity. We, we, were, we were having a conversation, Jay and I, he was at the birthday party yesterday, we we're having this conversation with my in-laws, and, and we we're talking about overseas and, and how different it is and how it's not so focused on work and all these things, and I just kind of made this sarcastic remark, because again, I'm sarcastic and annoying, I just made this sarcastic remark that, you know, this is one of the rare countries, the United States, where we spend most of our life working. I said, and you know, at everybody's funeral, as everybody draws to the end of their life, everybody says, oh man, I wish I had spent more time at work. Less time with my family. Less time enjoying life. Less time doing things I've got. Oh, if I could only have worked some more hours. Whoa, would my life have been fulfilled? No, we don't say that. We know it's foolish. But yet we just keep plugging right along, don't we? And that's what James and Paul says here. He says, stop thinking like the world. Stop thinking that this temporary life is going to last forever. It's not. Stop thinking like the world and instead, let your mind be transformed by the word of God. Start thinking in terms and in light of eternity. And here's what I love. Paul says, until we've come to the place where we've presented ourselves as a living sacrifice... Until we've come to the place that we've stopped thinking like the world and we've started to transform our mind, we will not know what God's will is. It's not until then that you get to the end of verse 2 where it says, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. And I love that even then, Paul says it comes through testing. Right? Now, we all would love for God to speak to us through the burning bush like he did Moses. Right? Except for if you remember that, Moses fell to the ground as dead. So maybe we wouldn't want that. Maybe that would scare us. Right? But God speaks to us through that still small voice. And even in that still small voice, if we're a living sacrifice, living for him, if we've allowed our mind to be transformed and we're thinking correctly, we take what we feel like God is leading us to do and we still test it. We test it by taking it to the word to make sure that it's true, that it's in line with God's word. We, we test it by talking to a, the brothers and sisters in Christ, the body of Christ, make sure that we're being confirmed in God's will. We test it by praying and asking God to lead us and to guide us and making sure the Spirit's guiding us in those things. But I just want you to notice, we don't know God's will until we're that living sacrifice with a transformed mind. 
then God will help us see his will and we can test it. We can make sure that it is that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So flip back with me now to James chapter 4. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And that's where James chapter 4 verse 17 comes in. Now we know the will of God. The question is, are we willing to obey the will of God? Funny thing about God is, he typically takes us just outside, if not well outside of our comfort zone. Because it's out there that we cling to him. Right? It's out there that we cling to him. It's out there that we acknowledge our great need for him. But it's also out there that we get tempted to turn and run from the will of God. Verse 17. To him who knows what to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Make plans. Make plans that are submitted to and acknowledge the sovereignty of God in those plans. But then be willing to obey God's will when you know what his will is for your life. Amen? Friendship with the world makes us the enemies of God. Friendship with God results from humility and it leads to grace. Friendship with God results in speech that is honoring to God. And friendship with God results in trusting in God's sovereignty. And it all begins by having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. As we saw back in Romans, it all begins by surrendering yourself so that you're dead to self and living for Christ. And so the question again is, do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you come to the place in your life where you've acknowledged that you're a sinner that your only hope of salvation is by putting your faith and trust in Christ. Well, if you're here this morning and you've never made that decision, you've never surrendered to Christ, you're here because God has a plan. And my question is, do you feel God calling you unto salvation? Do you feel God speaking and calling you out? Is God revealing who he is to you? If so, then I want you to know that is proof that God loves you. And that it's proof that God wants a relationship with you. And so if you're here and you feel God speaking to you and calling you unto himself, I want to encourage you, before you leave here today, come talk to me. I want to tell you more about how you can put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How you can acknowledge and confess your sin. How you can seek his forgiveness. And how you can surrender. How you can follow him in in your life. In just a few moments, we're going to stand to sing the hymn of invitation. Maybe you feel like God's calling you. You want to come and you want to talk with me down front. Maybe you want to do it after church. What I'm encouraging you to do is do not leave before you answer God's call. If God's calling, then say yes. Amen? Believers, are you being driven by this world and the selfish ambitions of the flesh? Or are you seeking after the things of God in your life? Listen, if you're struggling, that's actually a pretty good place to be. I don't know that I've ever made it through an entire day without struggling with worldliness. 
right? But acknowledging it, resisting the devil, fleeing from temptation, those are all parts of the daily life for a believer. But if you're looking at your life and you realize that you are 99% driven by the world, that you're going after it, trying to gratify your flesh, trying to to live in this temporary world as if it means everything, as if it's going to last for eternity, then I would say there ought to be flags waving in your life that says something ain't right. Something's not right. And you want to make sure that you confess that, that you acknowledge that. And you want to pray and ask God for forgiveness. You want to check and make sure that you really are living your life as a sacrifice for Christ, that your salvation is secure. And you want to make sure that you plead with the Lord that he would help you to see, help you to remember, and help you to know that living for him is eternity. Living for this world is a vapor that vanishes. Remember that. Amen? We've got to remember that. It's easy to get distracted. So believer, let me encourage you. Make sure that you're living your life for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how it encourages. We thank you, Lord, for how it convicts. We, we thank you, Lord, when it points out things that are doing, we're doing well. We thank you, Lord, when it points out things that we need to work on. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would have its way in our life. Lord, that as conviction comes, we would confess. Lord, I pray that as believers, Lord, that we would bring you glory as we live our lives for you. Lord, help us to be led by wisdom from above. Help us to live our lives as living sacrifices before you. And help us to bring you glory in how we do that. And then, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that does not know you, Lord, I pray that you would call them under yourself, that you would speak to them, that you would reveal yourself to them. And, Lord, that today could be the day that they put their faith and their trust in you. Lord, we surrender to you now. We pray that you would work, that your will would be done in us and through us during this invitation. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.